Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life and 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't strange. So perfect is the safety bicycle that, if the rider had sufficient skill not to interfere with its action, it will travel straight ahead and keep its own balance. Scientific American, 1896. Ride down that old highway and let those blues go. You're listening to the Arabug Radio Show here on Radical Radio 3CR. Podcasting, streaming, or listening on the transistor in the kitchen. Many thanks to Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! Always a wonderful show. And we've got a little bit of a good show coming up today. Faith is not here this morning, and it's just me by myself. But two days ago, Faith and I recorded a long interview with Stephen Rowley, who was one of the independent um, um, uh, consultants for who represented some repre- residents in the VCAD uh, hearing about the proposed new Bunning store on uh, near the corner of Ligon Street and Glen Lyon Road. So <clears throat> we'll have that coming up, and that's a really good um, look at what's going on there. Just a couple of things to clean up, I suppose. Um, I'll have a little bike moment to myself. I've changed my walking pattern in the morning, and I've been walking along the um, Yarra Trail at some stage, and one of the most striking things to me, actually, is... I'm seeing such a huge and wonderful variety of different bicycles at different times and days during the week. From cargo bikes, a lot of electric bikes, a lot of electric scooters, and every now and then my little nostalgia kicks in and I count the steel bicycles that are going past. 
I've got to say, there aren't too many of them, and but some of the ones that I've seen, I saw a beautifully restored Colnago the other day in all its lovely fa- uh, paint job and colour, and a lovely old um, English doors in an original colour, which was quite spectacular as it passed me. Anyway, that's my little bicycle moment for the week, is watching all those different sort of um, makes, models and riders just streaming past me on that Yarra Trail. Speaking of which, um, if uh, just a little bit of a heads up, if uh, people like to take the uh, South Bank shortcut uh, along the Yarra, you'll be, won't be surprised, but... Um, they're doing a bit of a, ma- a huge major refit on that South Bank side to those restaurants and cafes there. And you'll find, I think, that it's virtually just a choke point at um, one end, that is the Princess Bridge end. So if it's a, during a busy time of the day, I would see either cross over to the north side of the river and go that way because it has become a little bit of a choke point. Now... I think um, I'm just going to head straight into this interview and I will break it halfway through for uh, our Second Chance Cycle sponsor break. Um, Now, those of us who listened to the show for a while of us, we've been talking about this um, proposed Bunning store um, in Brunswick for a while and the VCAT decision came through the other day with it blocking the application and Faith first started asking Stephen, Stephen Rowley, who did represent some of the the residents at the uh, VCAD meeting, Faith started off by asking Stephen um, to give a bit of a synopsis about where this started and how it began. Yeah, this was a proposal for a Bunnings and it was supposed to go in uh, Brunswick, just off Ligon Street on Glenline Road. Um, so just off the Ligon Street tram there, as, as some people may know. Um, some people will know that there's an existing uh, Bunnings in Sydney Road, uh, which is a much smaller format than Bunnings normally operate. And that's much more of a uh, shopfront style operation. It has a small number of car parking spaces and it's, it's, um, it's still bigger than a traditional hardware store, but it's much closer to a traditional hardware store model than Bunnings normally uh, run. The Glenline Road Bunnings would have replaced that Bunnings if it had been approved. Um, And it was much larger. It was not quite your classic Bunnings shed. It it wasn't surrounded by car parking, for example, but it was still a very large uh, hardware store and landscape gardening and all the things that normally go with Bunnings, including, including how to trade supplies component. It did have car parking underneath in a basement, um so that was a again a bit different to perhaps the classic bunning shed that people envisage there was a lot of discussion through the hearing of the most comparable store and the one that people talked about a lot through the hearing was the store in hawthorne which uh some listeners might know um and if you can picture the store in hawthorne this was there were differences i don't think this was quite as well designed as that one in hawthorne is but the Hawthorne store is similar in terms of floor area, similar in terms of car parking numbers. So it was 260-odd uh, car parking spaces, I think, in the basement. Um, and, and the concern 
I mean, we can we can dig into some of the concerns with that, but but clearly there were concerns amongst the residents about that number of car parking spaces dragging that amount of traffic into the heart of Brunswick um, in a location that was very close to the tram line uh, on a major east-west cycle route, uh, a bus route, um, and and also a major pedestrian route. Yeah, you started to touch on some of those local features, but. What are the characteristics of this particular area um, that maybe made that style of Bunnings unsuitable? And, and even in contrast to that store in Hawthorne? Mm. There are a couple of things about that, that context that were really important in terms of it was very cheek by jowl with other uses. There are apartment balconies that are looking like straight onto the site. And in design terms, it's much more of a sort of you know, what, what planners and urban designery types and pretentious types like that call, you know, a, a fine grain urban interface, that sort of smaller buildings and, and um, quite a tight subdivision pattern. Um, and if you can imagine the typical Bunnings building and even the Bunnings building that was proposed here, which wasn't quite a typical Bunnings building, they're very large forms. So it was, it was a, a building form that was, um, in my view and in residence view and, and a view that was largely upheld by the tribunal, I think it was going to be a, a an alien form uh, to that sort of classic sort of inner city setting that it was going in. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a big believer, and I've mentioned the Sydney Road uh, Bunnings that exists already. I'm a big believer that, that Bunnings should be moving into these settings. I think it's, it's really unfortunate that Bunnings operate this very car-oriented model where they're essentially dragging activity out of traditional activity centres. Um, but the argument that we were putting at the tribunal was um, they need to find forms that are better suited to be in centre. Um, and that's probably going to smaller stores, less car parking and a, and a larger number of small stores rather than the Bunnings model where they want to have a smaller number of very big stores. Um, so, you know, I think there are really interesting questions about how these kinds of retailers, your Bunnings, and you could extend this to your office works and all these other big larger format retailers. They're really interesting questions, I think, in terms of how they respond to these inner city contexts and how we get to modes, uh, models of retailing that are more suited to walk up shoppers um, and don't require everyone to drive and don't don't suck traffic into these centres. Yeah, because along with that, um, you mentioned the, the character and the scale of uh, the existing buildings and the apartments even and that. Mm. There's also a different scale in mobility. Like it, mm. so, I think that particular activity centre had a ninety-four percent walkability rating. And uh, yeah, and I think it's a bit of a missing gap in um, planning policy at the moment. So one of the things that happened late in the process, like literally after the hearing, we got invited to make further submissions because there were changes to planning policy that, um, in the end, I think really improved our case. I, I think. I like to think we're already on our way to win, but I think it helped um, help cement the win that there was planning policy that reinforced the modes of transport. It is much more exciting schemes now that the priority is pedestrians, then cyclists. I'm going to forget a mode here, but pedestrians, then cyclists, then public transport, then cars in that order. Yeah. Um, and so that was really positive. But I think the gap that still exists and isn't as clear, which goes back to your question, is there's all this stuff about the 20-minute city 
in, in planning policy and this idea of walkable cities and, you know, lots of things in, in the local area. And what the planning policy doesn't really do is go through and extend that properly to our thinking about retail planning. Um, and the idea that, um, that I've just expressed and that, that I expressed on behalf of residents be moving to, as I said, smaller, more numerous stores and that really the only way to get to this idea of a walkable uh, 20 minute city where everything is much more locally available to people and they're not having to traipse across town is to move to those different kinds of retail models. Because if you go to a smaller number of big stores that is inherently car oriented. And I think that's um, what I was pleased by in this decision is the tribunal didn't put it in exactly those terms, but I, I think it was a decision that sort of took us in that direction um, and I think you know started to grapple with the implications of, of the 20-minute neighbourhood for retail planning I think there is work to do in terms of developing that planning policy to get us a an approach to land use planning and retail planning in particular that that starts to achieve that kind of walkable city model. And it's interesting you mentioned that gap because I think a lot of people thought well you know, the local Moreland Integrated Transport Strategy has all these policies. Um, if you look at the Victorian uh, cycling strategy and docu planning documents relating to movement, they seem to have that, but it, it doesn't, yeah, seem to become anything concrete in terms of um, addressing these uh, permit applications. I mean, I think that's true to an extent. I think we were able to get a lot of that in front of the tribunal during this case. And as I said, the changes to the transport policy that, that came in late were, were very helpful. One of the things that did really um, clearly, I think, was, and, and again, I, I like to think that we, we would hopefully won this on the basis of the various policies and transport strategies that Moreland have about active transport. And there's certainly plenty there for the tribunal to draw on. And I don't think they probably turned on a dime late in their consideration on the basis of that, those late transport policy changes. But it is really gratifying, I think, that, for example, the transport policy really escalated the status of the bike lanes, for example. Um, the bike lanes are now that, that go past this site and now referred to as, I think, the terminology in the planning policies, the state transport network, I think they refer to. And there's, yeah. this, there's this explicit grouping together of public transport and things like major bike corridors, the principal bike network, are given this elevated status that when um, when we were explaining, when putting submissions about the, the transport changes, it was really good to be able to say, well, hang on, there's this really clear um, status for the bike lanes now. Um, so rather than kind of, Sometimes in planning, you're referring to kind of like some fairly wishy-washy statements about, hey, bikes are awesome, you know, and you're putting that up against statements that say, hey, shops are awesome and, hey, you know, economic development is awesome and everybody's pointing to their own particular thing in planning policy. And one of the things that I think really happened with the, the transport changes was um, a, a clearer expression of the weighting of some of those different uh competing things and it was it was much it was much clearer I think that we should be really putting those that for example that bicycle network on a 
at a high status in terms of the transport network and really prioritizing that in decision. And then that comes, if you look at the VCAT decision, that really comes through. They, they gave a lot of weight to um, the fact that it was going to be difficult to reconcile all the vehicles attracted into this center and also all their movements across the footpath and across the bicycle network. It's going to be very hard to reconcile that with all those active transport objectives. Today, Stephen, is that um, set in stone or is it up to them to actually calibrate the impact it'll have on a bike lane? Well, there's always there's always room for judgment. I mean, that's the, you know, both the, the strength and the eternal frustration with the Victorian planning system is that there's always going to be um, judgment calls made and there's not a, um, there's not probably a, uh, a really sort of concrete test, if you like, laid out in planning policy of like what's yeah. an acceptable impact. Um, in this one, for example, though, there were impacts that, once we drilled down and, and there was a lot of transport evidence and a lot of discussion of transport matters before the tribunal in this case, one of the things that came up, for example, was, so there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of transport evidence before the tribunal in this one. And so there was a lot of discussion. Um, one of the things that we're able to show, I think quite convincingly is that uh, on this site, there was very regularly queuing past the site and past the site, what was going to be the site entry. And the implication for that was um, that to make exit movements, you can imagine if the queuing is past the site, the vehicles yeah. exiting have end up propping on the bike lanes. Um, and so to go to your question, you know, there's not necessarily a concrete test you can point to, but when you're in the tribunal, you can start to establish and, and the witnesses are agreeing, oh, well, look, um, you know, yes, to exit the site, you're going to have to prop on a bike lane and wait for a gap while the, while the traffic is queued so that you're sitting there essentially waiting for the traffic lights to change and for the vehicles to start moving. Um, that's a pretty concrete thing you can point to. So the things like that that were really helpful. Um, so no, it's not as concrete as perhaps it could be, but it's much more concrete than it used to be. And, and again, the, the reference that's in planning policy about prioritization of modes is much more explicit than the references that used to be there. Well, and I think the other thing, the other thing that was, I think, quite important in this case was, um, you know, we've talked about queuing on Glen Line Road, but there's also significant queuing on Ligon Street. And it's essentially because that intersection is approaching saturation. And again, that was pretty clear in the evidence that was discussed during the, during the case. And what that means is um, the traffic queuing that occurs on Ligon Street, obviously, um, Ligon Street is one of those areas where there's still not really separation for the trams. So that obviously has yeah. significant implications on the, on the trams. So you're seeing, you're seeing impacts from that traffic queuing already in two, you know, in two major aspects in terms of other transport modes. Um, and so intensifying those impacts was on this site always going to be problematic. And one um, interesting aspect of that planning amendment that came through late last year was it uh, bolstered policy in terms of the existing cycling networks and that, but it did also mention the impact on their future development, which going back to Val's point, I think that's important because I know residents in Moreland have aspirations that Glen Lyon Road should have a protected bike lane in the future. 
Yes, and I think, I mean, you know, I've got a particular interest in parking and I know a lot of residents will be very kind of like protective of their on-street parking, but you can imagine one of the obvious solutions because it's already only a single traffic lane and rightly so. It shouldn't be, they shouldn't be ever modifying that road to have more than one car lane, I should say, not traffic lane, car lane. Um, But you can imagine scenarios where they start to take out parking to increase the the pedestrian and cycling infrastructure and I think um, you know that's one of those things that will probably take some doing getting rid of parking spaces is always difficult for councils um, but you know that would be one of my aspirations longer term along that along that roadway but yeah you've I think you've got to have some vision of where it's headed which is what planning is supposed to be all about right um, yeah and, and protecting yeah. that that possibility in the future not ruling it out by something done now yeah yeah i'm gonna say i'm um when we were talking about you were talking about the hawthorne shop before as against and the brunswick shop on sydney road see the one in collingwood is probably a more a little bit in between those two of them and it has a much smaller footprint i know it's along victoria parade and the, all the parking is at back but obviously, I'm not sure whether Bunnings can see that they are they are doable. Those small sort of shops. Well, uh, the Collingwood and look, I'm starting to get a bit hazy on all the floor areas. I had all this at my fingertips uh, yeah. six months ago when we were doing the case. But the, the the Collingwood one, I remember being surprised at how large its floor area is. It has actually got a surprisingly large floor area. I think it because it's got parts that are double stacked Up, upstairs. Um, yeah, but the Collingwood store has quite a small. Sorry, Faith, you were saying the small car park? Yeah, yeah, it has yeah. quite a small car park, which was one of the key distinguishing things uh, between um, the the um, the Hawthorne store, the Collingwood store, and the proposed Brunswick store was the size of a car park. Because one of the discussions is that uh, you can't just consider and you know this is very clear in the literature about car parking you can't just consider the number of cars that comes to the site as a an inevitability based on a particular floor area the number of cars that are attracted to a site is driven by the amount of car parking you provide so there is this um predict and provide fallacy that you know i think more old school approaches to traffic engineering sometimes follow um, and, you know, one of the discussions here was, well, no, 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 you can't look at a store that has smaller car parking um, as, a, as an adequate predictor of what would have happened at this Bunning store. And the, the use of less car parking that you see at that Collingwood store um, is in many ways a, an indicator of what should be happening uh, on a on a store in a Brunswick area, and I'd ideally like to see even less car parking still. But um, it's uh, it is I think a challenge for these retailers to embrace a model with less car parking um, because they they I think they see it as important number of car parking spaces they can provide, the larger number of cars that can access the site. And the larger the um, the larger the potential catchment of a store is, and so this this is where you circle back to that twenty minute city idea, because a retailer, understandably, is going to be pushing to maximise their catchment, 
Mm. And the 20 minute city idea actually leads you logically to a point where land use planning should be encouraging lots of stores with small catchments. Yeah. And so unless there's a really clear statement in planning policy that, that I think does need to be there more strongly in policy, you'll always have those land use planning objectives um, either, well, I think at the moment what happens is they're ineffectively achieved. Um, and I think probably if they were more clearly expressed, you'd find that they would be then, you know, in a bit more conflict with some of these retailers who will be resisting that move to many small catchments rather than a smaller number of big catchments. And, and that is the nub of it. I think, um, you know, one thing I notice work sort of working on the other side, advocating for more and more people to be able to make local trips by bike or on foot, you, you need local destinations. And it's a discussion, I know it pops up in Moreland with councils trying to rationalise the number of swimming pools they have, as an example. But if mm -hmm. your swimming pool or your local sporting oval isn't within that walking, cycling um, distance, then there's no point having policies that advocate active transport. And there's a, there's a, really, there's a really challenging planning conundrum there in that to a certain extent the move to active transport has traditionally been understand for some degree of centralization in the cluster things around things like public transport nodes and so there's that activity center idea of of concentrating things and, and that was part of the the bunnings argument i was saying well it's an activity center so this is where we should be encouraging things so they were just saying well you go you go big in these locations that are for example, close to tram lines would have been part of their argument. But there is also a decentralisation argument in that you need lots of smaller things more spread out to encourage that really pedestrian-focused thing. And it's, it's I, think a, I think it's a little bit of a, a paradox, if you like, that's not carefully enough worked through in planning policy, that, that distinction between the centralisation impulse and the sort of the decentralisation of lots of little nodes um, it's not clearly enough expressed when you should be going for which, because, um, you know, I, I think there was a, a case that the representatives made at this hearing, but like I can understand that they're saying, well, hang on, we're, we're moving essentially into an activity centre. Technically, they're very just outside it, but we're essentially moving yeah. into an activity centre. Isn't that what planning policy asks us to do? And to a certain extent, that was right. But I think um, what won the day in this one was, I think, a, a slightly more sophisticated understanding of that. Yeah. I've got to say, Stephen, thank you very much for all your work on this project. Thanks very much for coming on um, Yarra Bug. It's great to see actually a little bit of um, our ambitions in planning then getting taken seriously by VCAT. And that's a, an interesting look and a great chat with uh, Stephen there about the nuts and bolts about how this VCAT decision um, got passed and on what grounds, especially on the um, safe and active travel ground. I'm going to be back in a sec. I'll just take this message from Second Chance Cycles, just with a bit of the, the backlash that's come from one of those this decision. 3CR would like to thank our Yarrabug program sponsor, Backrose Second Chance Cycles, for their financial support. Second Chance Cycles is a fantastic community workshop that recycles bikes, trains people in bike mechanics and sells bikes to the local community. If you have a healthcare card, they'll give you a bike free of charge. 
To find out more, search for Vacro online or drop into the underground car park, Harmsworth Street, Collingwood, any Thursday or Friday. And you're back listening to the Yarrabug Radio Show here on 3CR. Um, look, just a couple of the things that's happened since then. I'm not sure if people read Pickett Costello's newspaper much. They did publish a, a well-written article. Um, I've forgotten the, um, the journalist's name as we speak. Appeared, I think, on the Saturday or Friday. And look, it was a good article picking up on all the points of why VCAT rejected this uh, proposal. It did have the unfortunate headline, though, of, well, I presume it's clickbait online, is saying it was a hipster win in, of course, deepest North Brunswick, which put a, you know, they can't help but put that derogatory slag on some of these things. Obviously, this that then produced a couple of comments back to The Age, one of which then Stephen Rowley responded to himself, and his letter was published today in... Um, the age, and that's this morning, and I'm just going to read it out to just give you a little bit of an overflow of what happens and how they, how the backlash sometimes happens. Skewering misses the mark. Osman Fakar has certainly skewered an imaginary bunch of Brunswick hipsters in his reflection on the recent defeat of Bunnings by the residents in Brunswick. Blocking a Bunnings, that's sacrilege, comment, the 30th of the 4th. However, the hint that the case was not simply, as he puts it, a misguided attack on a class of Australians that Brunswick residents don't understand should be that the residents won. Culture wars and nimbyism do not win VCAT cases. I represented residents in this case and it was one on strong planning grant grounds, including urban design concerns and the likelihood of impacts on adjacent tram and cycling routes. It is telling that Farquhar mentions that he was able to walk to his old local bunning store in Collingwood. The Brunswick store was rejected largely because VCAT agree that it was not an appropriate response to a pedestrian-focused centre. Hopefully the decision spurs retailers such as Bunnings to explore greater use of small pedestrian-orientated local stores in preference to large car-orientated formats. Stephen Rowley. I'm not too sure if I can say anything more than that. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week. Coming up next is a Shebop. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.